You're listening to the Behind the Cover podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Shaw, the premier choice for affordable, durable, and exceptional sounding microphones. With almost a century of microphone design legacy, Shaw is committed to delivering immersive sound experiences that resonate with professionals and enthusiastics alike. Whether it's audio production, podcasting, live performances, conferencing, or any form of content creation, Shure is your go-to brand for high-stakes moments, offering reliability and excellence in sound. So we are about to read a piece of Australian music history. So I'm holding in my hands the October 1985 print magazine of Rolling Stone Australia with Michael Hutchins of In Excess on the cover. So this was 12 years before his tragic death on November 22, 1997. That was the day that we lost a music icon and one of the most charismatic and commanding live performance I think Australia's ever had. He was this huge talent with a larger than life legacy that I think we still feel today. And that's why this piece, this time capsule from almost 40 years ago is so momentous. I read it before I sat down and I just love how the writer, Toby Creswell, he captures the impact that In Excess already had on culture at this point. So Toby knew Michael very, very well. He actually wrote a biography about him in 2017 called uh, Shine Like It Does, The Life of Michael Hutchins. And we are lucky enough to have him in the studio with us today and we'll have a chat with him later. For now though, here is the 1985 Rolling Stone Australia cover story on Michael Hutchins and In Excess. Albury Wodonga is, as the locals keep insisting, a border town. Sitting astride the Murray River between New South Wales and Victoria, Albury Wodonga owes much of its prosperity to the Whitlam government, which designated it a regional growth centre back in the early 70s. There is a definite sense of specialness, a new frontier about the town, a metropolis in microcosm in the middle of nowhere. Aubrey Wodonga reminds Michael Hutchins of other border towns. He stares out of the travel lodge window and talks of seeing Mexicans running towards the US border. The hills have that same khaki colour, the sparseness. Not arid, but not particularly fertile. It's the border ethic that's really pervasive, though. That sense of slight disconnectedness. Here we are in the Australian bush and everyone is talking about New York, London, Los Angeles, Buenos Aires, Paris... In Excess are about to cross a sort of border of their own, a kind of launch into the Twilight Zone. Their fifth album has just been completed using English producer Chris Thomas, and with an all-up cost that informed sources place around the half-million mark. The band is embarking on a world tour that will take them to four continents, and if all goes according to plan, they'll be on the road for the next nine months. Nine months that they hope will see their transformation from the ranks of the contenders into the major league. Right now, however, the band is in Albury on the final dates of an Australian country tour warming up for the stadiums and the concert halls. In Excess have covered this territory for seven years, playing every bar or hall that would have them, from the Queensland deep north to the mining towns of Western Australia's Pilbara. It's this extensive playing in front of audiences that has bound the group together and made them one hell of a live band. In Australia, bands have a lot of experience playing live, says Hutchins. You throw yourself up against popular opinion instead of sitting in the studio writing a song and getting $50 a week from the record company. I think playing live is a very good thing for a band. 
though it's starting to disappear here, just as it has overseas. These days, record companies are signing bands for lots of money in big-budget videos. Personally, I don't like the result. InXS's strength has always been its sense of community. Six people with equal input making loud music together. It's a gang mentality that mixes up John Farris's interest in funk with Tim Farris's tough rock tastes and the swing jazz that Kirk Pengilly listens to. Given that three of the band are brothers and that they have all been playing in NXS since they were teenagers, the group has a healthy collective subconscious. There has also been a genuine adventurousness. The flip side to their singles, for example, have usually been group experiments while pushing their own limits, while the A-sides are aimed directly at the top 40. The two previous albums, Shabu Shabar and The Swing, were both records that made the most of layered textures and studio technology, moody, elusive, emotive records. The current album, Listen Like Thieves, however, is very much in the classic rock and roll spirit. The textures are still there and the dynamics are still there, but the emphasis is on the power drive. We decided to write the album in a rehearsal situation, says Hutchins. Everybody had ideas in their heads, but not many of the songs were written before we rehearsed, and we wrote one song in the studio. It wasn't the kind of album where you put each track down bit by bit. We've done the album like a live show, and what is there is there. We want to present this record as a band, the idea of six people playing together and using traditional sounds. With the current technology and production, with some of the records I hear on the radio, there's literally nobody there, just a producer and an AMS. I can't think of more than six bands over the last two years who have been big anywhere in the world. It's all solos and duos. It's going back to Tin Pan Alley when you have songwriters going straight to producers. NXS's notion of a band is more like a collective. The group has stuck together for seven years, including a period where they all moved to Perth together. The band accommodates individual talents and allows for their expression, despite the fact that most of the songs are written by Hutchins and Andrew Farris. For example, the flip side of the current single was written and produced by John Farris, while Andrew Farris has done some outside production work. Hutchins is considering a role in Richard Lowenstein's next drama called Dogs in Space, and Kirk Pengilly has involved himself in projects like the studio ska band The Igniters. Andrew and I may write most of the songs, but this is a real band, says Hutchins. It's not two writers and four dumb musicians. It's a very active, competitive, democratic group of people. None of us take a low profile, and that's very important. We're a band that sounds very much like a band. Chris Thomas may be well known for his work with Alton John, but it was his production of The Sex Pistols and The Pretenders which had most in common with Listen Like Thieves. That common denominator is inventive, emotive, and solid rock and roll. The way Chris works is to get you to play it, and he won't talk about it, says Hutchins. He'll turn it up loud and play it back to you. Any mistakes in the worth or otherwise of a song becomes painfully clear. He listens at full volume 90% of the time, though I don't think he's completely deaf yet. It does get embarrassing, like when he does the final mixing at Air Studios. He'll open up the door and turn up the monitors and sit back and wait to see if anybody will come in and ask about it. In going for a rock approach rather than the electronic emphasis of the past two albums, NXS found new strengths within the group, particularly in Tim Ferriss, whose guitar work had long been subsumed in the rhythm. The sheer size of the sound on Listen Like Thieves gives the band a different shape and an exuberance that wasn't evident before. I was just thinking the other day how our album seems to go in cycles, says Hutchins. Shabu Shabar was a very emotional record. 
The swing was, by our standards, pretty political. Musically, it was an album where I think crossed somewhere between left and right and met in the middle, and that's what I think NXS is in some ways. Listen Like Thieves is like saying, let's have fun, saying it really simply, and who cares if there's no hidden meaning? While Michael Hutchins discusses the recording of Listen Like Thieves, next door in room 316, the NXS Global Headquarters has set up temporary office. Chris Murphy, NXS's manager, is manning phones and calling meetings. While NXS certainly deserved their full due for the music on their records, Murphy can take a lot of credit for the sales, and for the fact that the last NXS single debuted in the national charts at number five, higher than any previous Australian record. Murphy was born in the business. His father started the MMA agency, and Chris moved into the family business, taking over NXS after years of working through booking agencies. He signed the group to the independent deluxe label in the late 70s, and when that went sour, he took them to WA Records as an independent production distributed through WEA. Murphy and the band have maintained their control over the market and their public image, and they have used considerable foresight in planning their long-term career moves, as demonstrated by their first trip to the United States over two years ago, well before the band had hit there. The plan was to break in the international territories as they were peaking there. This is the stage now, explains Hutchins, where you're in a corner in Australia. That's why we went overseas before we got to this stage, so we don't feel like there's a gun to our heads, that we'd better get big overseas right now or we'll die in Australia. We've always been ambitious. We're not floundering towards the next gig, but I've always considered us to be very natural. If we are just a pop group, which I don't think we are for one minute, then we're a very natural one. It's not showtime, boys. It's not putting on this trip for world domination. It's just not that mercenary. That's not what I got into music for, celebrity or whatever. Stardom and success are two different, though connected, phenomena. Success comes from Chris Murphy and the band's highly accessible music. The stardom comes from Hutchins himself. He has the ego and the self-consciousness. For example, throughout this particular afternoon in Albury-Wodonga, there was a crowd of teenagers gathered at the front of the hotel, and screams would go up every time there was a glimpse of one of the band. Every so often, a cry of, Michael, would reach up to the third floor, and eventually, Hutchins responded and went down to meet the kids. He came back with a list of names for the half-dozen who weren't able to get tickets to the show. In private life, Hutchins is quietly spoken, educated, and funny. Then, as showtime approaches and the band is dressing, one can see him change. He gets a little more withdrawn and a little more tense. The energy level goes up and there is a glint in his eyes. Similarly, after the gig in the town's one late night bar, the promoter is throwing around bottles of champagne and as he gets drunker, Hutchins gets a looking for trouble look in his eye. As soon as I got out of school, I nosedived into the underground, he said earlier in the day. I wanted to see the other side of life. I guess it's a romantic notion, but I find it really good for me. I really like going to places where nobody cares about you or knows who you are. It's great for the soul. I've had a cycle of going in and out of the cliched rock and roll lifestyle, and I'm not interested in the sex, drugs, and rock and roll way of living. Lately, I've taken a turn in my life and I've stopped indulging myself and other people. At this stage, I could go either of two ways. I could go out the old traditional rock and roll way or take a sort of perspective. I hope that's what I'll do. The rock and roll star is not something that is simply a product of the music, but rather a creation of a new self. 
Just as Elvis Presley created a self-image for the public based on solid gold Cadillacs, or Pete Townsend created a self for the public based on his adolescent perception of himself as misunderstood teenage mod, so it is true that Michael Hutchins, and to a lesser degree the whole of In Excess, have created a special image of themselves. While it is somewhat more subtle and complex than those of Presley or Townsend, it is very definitely there in the clothes and the poses they adopt on stage. While it's largely Hutchins's love of trouble that gives the band its high public profile. Hutchins can muster up that sense of danger that goes with rock and roll from Mick Jagger to Nick Cave. He gives the melodic in excess an edge. But it's only on stage that the real power of the group becomes apparent. Tonight, in a broken down country cinema, in excess prove what a consummate band they really are. The set opens with the, the Swing, the title track of the Five Times Platinum album. The kick drum powers it off with double beat. John Farris pounding the beat with his feet while he holds the drumsticks aloft in gloved hands. Tim Farris plays the guitar in leather and chrome and he doubles on bass to beef up the bottom end, while Kirk Pengilly looks more than slightly eccentric as he pulls off guitar lines like a consummate professional. And in the background, Andrew Farris plays guitar amidst a stack of high-tech keyboards. Across the stage, Gary Beers is silent, incognito behind an unstoppable beat. Out front is Hutchins, lurking around the stage under his familiar greatcoat, with his characteristic obscure grace incorporating high kicks and grasping at straws. His charismatic presence is undeniable. To see In Excess on stage is to see one of the last great rock and roll bands, a celebration of physicality and aesthetics. It's incredible that a bunch of friends should end up such good players. Never thrown anyone out, never needed help, Hutchins had said. The worst thing that could happen to us is for divisions to develop within the band. We could split off into three separate bands tomorrow, but we fight strenuously to keep together. So far, there have been no major rifts, and we still get on really well. We know each other so well. I find that rather frightening. Toby Creswell, thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Cover podcast. We have just read your piece from 1985 mm -hmm. where you sat with Michael Hutchins in a hotel room and then you went to the show and then it seems like you hung out with them after, the whole band in excess. This was almost 40 years ago. Right, yikes. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember much of this experience? Yeah, absolutely. It was a life-changing moment for me because... Um, I've been writing for the magazine for a while on a freelance sort of basis. And uh, in 85, just around the time that I did that story, um, Paul Gardner and Jane Matheson, who published the magazine and edited it, uh, invited me to come on as a full-time employee, as a music editor. So um, it was a big thing because Paul had, and Jane, I guess as well, had decided to embrace Australian music. And, you know, Rolling Stone had been going for a long time, since 72 in Australia, and there'd only been one Australian cover, which was Skyhooks. And there'd also been a minute work cover in, on US Rolling Stone, which uh, we ran here. But basically there'd been very little Australian uh, feature stories or input into the magazine. And so Paul kind of thought, oh, well, I'll take a chance on, on uh, Michael Hutchins. The band and Warner's, the record company, were very keen to do this because In Excess were just on the verge of breaking it. They had to listen like Thieves album with what you need on it. And 
So a Rolling Stone cover was something that, that, that could actually break the band internationally. In those days, before the internet, everything was very, very kind of hands-on. And uh, it was very hard for people overseas to understand how big a band was in Australia. So the one, the one sort of thing that would make it work, the one kind of uh, piece of currency was the Rolling Stone cover. Mm. So it was kind of important for them to make that happen. So we had a situation where Warner's and NXS and the management really wanted it to happen. Paul was kind of wanted it to happen, but also was concerned about the risk because it was a, it was a very big risk as far as he and Jane were concerned. And anyway, we managed to get it to happen. So you were freelancing at the time. Yeah. And what what kind of publications were you working for outside of Rolling Stone? Um, I did my first piece for Rolling Stone in 77, I think, which was a review of Jojo Zepp and the Falcons. And you remember your first review? Absolutely. Um, you know what? Me too, because mine was North Lane, like the first North oh, really? Lane record. And I remember it was on, I was only 127 words. <laughs> and I remember going, how the heck am I going to tell the story of this record in 127 words? Yeah. You're yeah. right. You do remember your first... Yeah, so I used to send stuff off in the middle of the night and they occasionally published them. So I started then, in about 1980, I started being more serious about it as a kind of career and started wanting to, to write a lot. And I did a lot of work for Rolling Stone. That was kind of, there was a magazine that I was really very uh, committed to, you know, from issue 100, which was the first Australian issue in 72. So anyway... 1980, I started writing for them a lot, and um, yeah, it was a it was a really good time because Australian music was really kind of uh, coming into its own. You know, re the records were kind of selling enough now that, that record labels were starting to invest in Australian music, and and bands were kind of getting big. You know, the Angels, Cultures, All In Excess, Metals, Anything, blah blah blah. You're very good at capturing culture and what's happening at the time in your pieces so in this piece the band had released Shabu Shabar the swing was already out as well um and there was obviously this huge buzz around NXS and then in your piece you show that you're in the hotel and there's these kids downstairs screaming that can be heard from the room um huge fans of the show that are wanting tickets basically and you that captures the height of the in excess fandom in that moment too i'd never seen anything like that kind of teen thing like it was like we were five floors up and they was kind of screaming and occasionally michael would go to the window and pass open the curtains and they would just scream more and then we'd sit back down and talk about the cave did when you <laughs> were walking out did the kids rush you did they want to talk to you because you'd been they inside had no idea who i was the Perfect. only thing that they were interested in was was in excess and particularly Michael, you know. See, was... see, nowadays they would, because of the internet and Twitter and being able to source who you are, they would be able to work out you're the music editor for Rolling Stone Australia. They would know that you would be there and mm. they would probably rush you going to your car or your way out. <laughs> yeah, maybe. It was kind of weird though too because I remember getting the assignment from Rolling Stone I didn't have a phone. So it had to all, everything had to be kind of coordinated, but on a red payphone on the corner outside the corner shop. So you you get to this area and then you use the red payphone to call Chris Murphy or something. Oh, when I was at you know when the, I was assigned the um, the story, 
and then I had to negotiate with jewelry organisation of the see. story and stuff, and and talk to the magazine from the you know one of those red payphones. You probably have no idea what they look like, but I know, well I know what a payphone looks like. So were you <laughs> so, so you would write some of the piece and then to talk to your editor, you'd go down to the payphone and talk through yeah, it. Yeah, and wow. how how you got it to how you um how you were going to logistically I was going to get to Aubrey and get back again and all that kind of stuff. It was all just kind of done on a public phone. How did you get to Aubrey? Um, I can't remember who paid for it, whether it was Warner's or the magazine. I suspect, I suspect it was Warner's and uh, on an aeroplane. You flew there. Was that... You'd flown in a plane before? Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. It wasn't like a bit of a first trip. No. And in that, you're in this room with yep. Michael Hutchins and you mentioned that next door is kind of like this NXS global headquarters with Chris Murphy on the phones. And I just wondered, what was it like dealing with Chris Murphy? Because he, obviously we lost him in 2021, larger than life character in many ways. Was he very much hands-on in your interview process, your researching process, post-interview? What was he like to deal with? Chris was very hands-on about stuff, and he was—he um, had an incredibly good team uh, at MMA at the time, and uh, he had a great outsider, Gary Gary Grant. Um, yeah, so they were all really smart, really connected, really committed people. Everyone was kind of, uh, you know, you could feel that everyone was on board this project to get in excess to the top of the American charts. You know, they'd been going for some years and Chris had a vision. You know, he had his map of every day in his three-year plan and he was just, you know, pursuing it. And um, mm, it was kind of amazing to behold it because, you know... He, Chris was a kind of next level guy, you know. Australian Australian music in the seventies and eighties, it was really, from my perspective, it seemed to be the people who were running the thing were the managers, and there were a bunch of alpha male managers who were kind of dictating how the industry would develop and and who was going to make it and how it was going to go, and they had much more clout, I think, than than the record companies or radio or anybody else. Mm. And Chris was really, you know, an alpha male amongst the alpha males. And what was he like in dealings with you around the piece? Um, we got on incredibly well for a long time. Um, and there's a lot of mutual respect. Um, we eventually, the next time we did a Michael Hutchins cover, we um, had a bit of an argument about that and um, we didn't get on after that. So um, <laughs> at this point, we were very good friends. And, you know, he was kind of trying to um, make sure that the gardeners went with the, with the thing. They obviously would like the band, but there was no, that was not going to happen. It was going to be Michael Solo. And um, I remember, you know, going back and forth because the Rolling Stone offices were in neutral, sort of neutral bay and about uh, a, a kilometre away from the MMA offices, which were down by the water. So we were kind of going back and forth and, you know, with, with pictures and kind of deals and trying to, you know, um, just kind of make it happen, really. There was a lot of people committed to it going to head. And it really changed the magazine. You know, this cover, because it did really well, uh, kind of confirmed, you know, Paul and Jane's uh, commitment towards Australian music. And it really changed after that. 
thank goodness, you know, we almost have you and Michael Hutchins to thank for <laughs> a focus on local music, which is a big thing that we have. Yeah. Mm. I mean, it was kind of like Australian music in those days was not as, it was not nearly as popular as it is now. And so it was kind of seen as Australian music was seen as kind of um, a, a death knell for a cover. And so this was a really real turning point. Do you think it was because of bands like Cold Chisel who were like, we don't really need to export the band. We don't really need to tour overseas endlessly. We're just going to be the biggest and best rock band in Australia. Um, that was part of it. I think also what Murphy really learned something from Cold Chisel because Cold Chisel sort of did three albums and then they, on their third album, they started uh, getting releases in America and starting to tour. But by that stage, the band had been going for 10 years and they were tired, you know, and they had kind of nice houses at home or nice, you know, lives here and didn't want to kind of get in the van and just tour America. So Murphy sort of took in excess to America very, very early in their career and even before there was any interest in them. And then they started playing in a, in a bar in San Francisco. I can't remember the bar, which was the first gig. And then they just toured for years and years and years and built it up that way. So... You know, that was kind of the difference as well. And I think those guys' sort of vision and the willingness of people like Paul to get get behind Australian music really, you know, did make a difference mm. in the 80s. Now, you mentioned before you had a bit of a tiff with Chris Murphy, which um, inspired him to never talk to you again. And I would love for us to sit down and do a full podcast chat about that Michael Hutchins okay. cover. But just in case I can't get a hold of that magazine... Would yep. you tell the story of the Michael Hutchins cover from the 90s, which led to Chris Murphy being really upset with you? Yeah. Well, uh, so In Excess, you know, were huge with Kick. And Michael, I think, was, you know, he he wanted to kind of get beyond In Excess, I think, in some ways. He didn't want to leave the band and he wouldn't leave them, but he did want to try other things. And he went and did this record called Max Q, which uh, some people have probably heard about and certainly Hutchins fans would know about it and um, yeah it was a great album but uh, and he did it with Ollie Olsen from Melbourne and it was kind of around about this, the film Dogs in Space around about that time and um, so he's got this record and I thought it was a great record and I thought well Mike, you know there's a lot of people who want to know about what Michael Hutchins is doing so we thought we'll put him on the cover and then we realised that Chris Murphy didn't like the Max Q record. He, he didn't want the Max Q record to happen. He didn't like that it was happening because he didn't want to break up in excess. He thought he had a good formula with um, Michael and Andrew Farris and let's just leave it at that. So he tried to bury the Max Q record. He didn't put it out on uh, Warner Brothers who had the other in excess records. Um, he specifically didn't do that and he... Um, he made sure that there was no promotion as much as he could. So managers in those days particularly used to kind of control photography and they would, you know, people would have to sign releases and they were pretty uh, pretty tight on, on, uh, on the releases around, um, around Michael. And so every photographer that we tried to find to get a picture for the cover um, wouldn't sell them to us. Because so, Chris had already gotten in there. Well, Chris had, Chris had basically, yeah, he, he'd controlled all of the photographs. 
There was another magazine at the time called The Edge, which was being edited by a friend of mine called Clinton Walker. And we were both trying to get um, a Michael Hutchins cover. And we would just, I would just sit up all night calling magazines all around the world, trying to find somebody who had a photograph. And eventually, about two o'clock in the morning, I, I found somebody in England who uh, was an agent who had um, who had uh, photos and didn't have a release form and signed by Murphy. So it was great. It was a great headshot of Michael. <laughs> and um, so I said, "Yeah, yeah, let's have kind of have the photos." And they said, "Sure." Uh, I said, "Where are they?" And they said, "Oh, they're down the road." And uh, Smash Hits magazine had got got the uh, pictures. So I went down the road the f first thing the next morning and um, met this girl, uh, Lisa Anthony, who was editing Smash Hits, and she just handed over the pictures and we became friends. Um, and Clinton never talked to me again and neither did Chris Murphy. But, <laughs> um, you know, I thought it was important. A great record and um, Michael was happy. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to burn a bridge, just make sure you don't need it again. Well, yeah, it caused a few problems over the years, but it's all right. Yeah. Um, Would you do it again? Well, yeah. I mean, I was kind of really, you know, um, I liked Michael Hutchins as an artist and I kind of liked him, you know, we were kind of acquaintances, I suppose. So I was kind of, I thought it was important to publicise his work. Mm. And I thought our readers want to know about it as well. So, you know, we... Murphy managed to jump through all of these kind of hoops. Like we have to get avant-garde artists to do, you know, uh, pictures of Michael and all this kind of stuff. And it was all just shit. Mm -hmm. But it worked out in the end. It was kind of fun. I love that. And I love going a bit rogue with Rolling Stone. I think that that's the publication where you can do it. Well, I think so. I think, you know, it's... Um, and of course, Inexcess had this other issue with Rolling Stone in America. Because... Uh, Kick album came out sort of midway through the tour, the American tour. The Americans wanted to put in excess on the cover, and they wanted to put Michael on the cover of American Rolling Stone. And Chris kept going, no, 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 it has to be the band, it has to be the band. And you know, while he was a big shot in Australia, he wasn't such a big shot in the United States. And so Jan Wenner and the magazine just said, okay, well, if we can't get Michael, we'll have Terence Trent Darby. And so that was the end of Inexcess's uh, possibility of getting an American cover. Oh, and I burnt the bridge that way. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I love this feature because it, you go from the hotel room to the live show to this only late night pub that's open yeah. as well. What do you remember about that night? And was there anything that you couldn't put in due to word count or whatever or perhaps um defamation maybe um that you wish that you could have put in the piece uh no i don't think so i mean i was very green so i was pretty kind of uh not intimidated but i was pretty green about around the guild so there wasn't anything that contentious i mean i i liked sort of liked in excess um and sort of wasn't that impressed really and then i went to went to that show and uh, I, just, I remember being backstage, which was sort of like a, an old semi-trailer backed up against the, the uh, town hall or whatever it was in. And they were kind of doing a sort of spinal tap impersonation before going on stage, you know, kind of hitting the walls and stuff like in spinal tap. And, um, and then I just 
witnessed the room and it's, it is, the show started with the swing with um, with Johnny Farris on the drums just doing this incredible massive kind of huge kind of beat and that kind of converted me after that I love that you remember that yeah that moment there's it's very clear that you it's only 40 years ago I don't know I just I I mean I look at articles I did five years ago and I sometimes struggle to remember the moments but what's beautiful is you can read it back and it brings it conjures all the memories which I love there's also this very interesting moment where Michael Hutchins seems to think about his own legacy Mm -hmm. and his mortality and there's a line I'd love to read it to you he says at this stage I could go either of two ways I could go out the old traditional rock and roll way or take a sort of perspective I hope that's what I'll do right what does that conjure up when I read that back to you knowing that he passed yeah well, I, I, the thing that surprised me most in the interview was, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know that much about Michael, but I kind of, he was, he wanted to talk as much about Nick Cave and the Hunters and Collectors uh, as he did about the band, you know, and he kind of, he sort of implied that he would really like to be in the Bad Seeds. Okay. So there was always that kind of side to him as well, and I think... You know, he was interested in in uh, blues and he was interested in kind of uh, bohemian avant-garde stuff as well as, like, loving pop music and obviously um, and dance music and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting kind of character and, it, and it, didn't, it didn't come out in the music, you know. It was something that he was sort of... that was sort of hidden, but... In retrospect, that was the road he was going to go down, you know. Because mm. around about this time, he did uh, Dogs in Space, that film where he plays. You allude to it in the piece, actually. Yeah. Yeah. He plays a sort of junky rock star. And, um, you know, I think that was kind of the beginning of the the way out, you know, the beginning of the end in a way. Like, a, like an omen? Well, kind of. I think. You know, I don't really, you know, I don't, I'm not in a position to know, you know, really pontificate much about what what made Michael Hutchins um, fall off the twig like that. But, you know, he did have that, he had those two sides to him, you know. There was one side that was kind of uh, serious about his art, serious about his work, really loved things of beauty. And there was another side of him that was kind of dark and, and self-destructive. And I think you know, and, and I think the uh, the car, the the bicycle accident, and the the head trauma and stuff probably pushed him in a direction mm. that you couldn't have foreseen. But there was always that kind of he always liked the dark side. You, you allude know. to the dark side in this, actually. Um, you say. <laughs> uh, as he gets drunker, Hutchins gets a looking for trouble look in his eye. Yeah, I think Michael had caused a, you know a, a lot of trouble in his day. I mean, I don't didn't see any evidence of it at that point, but you know, subsequently it became obvious. You know, he was a hedonist. You know, he really liked. He was very interested in um, in sex and drugs, mm-hmm. and you know, the In Excess were a big party band of all of the groups of the eighties. In Excess and MMA always had the best parties. And you got to see one of them, like the after party, I guess, of the show. Yeah, well, that was just kind of, there was like one pub that was open and 
the band was just crammed into it and the public was just crammed into it as well and everybody was just drinking as fast as they possibly could. Did you party that night or, or were you thinking, no, I'm the journalist, I need to stay sober? Um, no, I wasn't thinking that. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was um, you know, I was pretty pissed by the end of it, I think. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you, you, you're involved. You're, well, you know. You're in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you remember, I mean, this is just such a terrible segue and it's going from you know partying to something quite traumatic but do you remember where you were when you found out Michael Hutchins had passed away mm. tell me um, I'd just been at a wedding and we came home and uh, the phone rang and a friend of mine Melissa just rang up and said Michael is dead it was pretty um, uh, pretty kind of Weird, just kind of horrifying, really. Mm. I think I'd seen him a little, little bit before that, at the beginning of the tour, and he wasn't in terrific shape. And I think you know a lot of stuff weighed on him. Mm. Yeah, you almost felt there was an energy around him that hadn't been there when you first met him. No, no. I mean, when he when I first met him, and for most of the time that I knew him, he was like bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Mm. You know, he was just. He was and also incredibly positive and incredibly nice about stuff. You know, he he wanted to kind of participate. Like you would see him going out to nightclubs and stuff and kind of hanging in the corner and things. He didn't live in an ivory tower. He wanted to know what was going on. He, you know, he would go and see, you know, you'd see him at the Piccadilly Hotel watching the Deadly Hume and all that kind of stuff. He was very much, he always wanted to know what the fuck was going on and, and be involved. Hmm. I feel like I can't, sit across from you who I see as a culture journalism legend and not ask you about your thoughts on long form journalism and where you think it's going and where you think it is now because obviously we at Rolling Stone still have a print magazine we, we're quarterly uh, and we really believe in long form and we believe in print journalism um, but there's no denying a change in the attention economy <laughs> yeah um I think it's there's always going to be a place for long-term journalism, long-form journalism, and good writing. You know, really, that's kind of uh, that's how you get underneath things. And and there are things that you can do with words on a page that you can't do any other way. So I think the short-form stuff, you know, the, around the traps and the paparazzi stuff, mm. can all be done much quicker on social media. But so I think really the only future for print is going to be long form journalism, and that's why magazines like Rolling Stone have survived, and that's why, um, you know, a magazine like The New Yorker is very popular now in the way that it never was before because people want that, they want that kind of quality. It's not going to be huge numbers of people, but I know I don't think it ever was. I think probably people would buy Rolling Stone for the record reviews and they would buy it for the news at the front and stuff, they wouldn't necessarily buy it for a 4,000 word, uh, you know, um, rumination on in excess or cultures or something. They would. So I think, you know, it's just the mask has come off now, but there's always going to be a place for long form journalism. That's a really good point. It was always for a niche audience. Yeah. Uh, it still is. But in order to get that true storytelling and dive deep into something and unpack the nuances of 
an impact on culture or a record or an artist's persona versus their actual persona behind closed doors. Only a long form piece can do that. I think so too. And I think, you know, everyone's talking about, um, you know, robot writing and stuff. Yeah, AI, AI. Mm. Mm. And I think uh, that's sort of the end of those short pieces. But I think that's where inventive journalism is going to really come into its own. And I think it's harder now because you really have to kind of inspire people as well. You have to kind of grab them and, and intrigue them in a way that you didn't possibly didn't have to work as hard before. Which makes you a better writer, right? You know, like I look at yeah. AI and how it's coming into journalism and I'm excited. I'm like, yeah. this, is, this is a great tool. Yeah. It is not a replacement for human creativity. No. Well, we used to have to compete with, you know, like, um, you know, some student from UTS, but now we have to compete with robots who are much smarter. You know, so <laughs> it's going to keep people on their toes. Yeah. But I think any journalist out there that thinks that they will be replaced by these robots, I think maybe maybe they need to level up their own skill a bit um, yeah. and, and be excited about the competition as well because cream always rises to the top. Yeah, I think so. And I think people will pay for it. Mm. I feel like this isn't the last time you and I are going to sit together and unpack a Rolling Stone cover feature that you have done. And I'm really excited to have more of these chats with you. I think I have a few more um, in the office that I can dig out. But thank you so much, Toby, for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for asking. I hope it wasn't too boring. Are you kidding? That was amazing. Amazing.